This evening we look together in God's Word in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, We begin reading with verse 22. Twenty-two through thirty-four. Well, I think I switched to thirteen, so that's not bad. We'll read a little more there. Begin with verse thirteen. This is the account of Paul in Athens. People of God, hear the glorious good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. The Gospel. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God had been preached by Paul in Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Uh, Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, What does this babbler want to say? And others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, 
for we who for we are also his offspring therefore since we are the offspring of god we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone something shaped by art and man's devising truly these times of ignorance god overlooked but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness By the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. People of God, when I read this passage, I'm reminded of several things that people have said to me in the past concerning it, and that is that uh, Paul in two places closely identifies with the culture in which he is proclaiming by quoting from a a Stoic, uh, quoting from a poet, and by making mention of an altar. Uh, However, uh, the way in which some state that is that Paul is is attempting to identify with the culture, to to find a link to the culture, when indeed uh, both of these introductory comments then are followed up by striking declarations concerning the decadence and the sinfulness of the culture in which he is speaking to. It is the exact opposite of some form of identification with the culture. It is counter-cultural evangelism, unashamed, and clearly, clearly proclaimed. It was about a year ago that I stood on the Areopagus, the Mount of Ares. It was a year ago that I had a meditation based on this text that I I was able to share with a group of believers and some unbelievers that heard it because of the nature of the geographical setting which is clearly set before us in the text. We, as God's people, are commanded to go tell it on the mountain. And you children may know this song, right? Go tell it on the mountain. Uh, It is a favorite of my grandchildren. And they love to sing it. And they sing it with great enthusiasm. Go tell it on the mountain. That Jesus Christ is King. And that song reflects the command that God gave in what we call the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, 18 and following. And Jesus spoke and said to them, this is, uh, this is just at uh, the time when 
Jesus is proclaiming to them after the resurrection. Jesus spoke and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul in Athens was partially, because the church is continually to fulfill that command, it's a command to us, it's a command to Paul, it's a command to all God's people, to the church of Jesus Christ. He sought to fulfill that. He was particularly called as, as an apostle and sent out as a missionary of the church of Jesus Christ. And so we look together at countercultural evangelism. Uh, we look at that as we see that countercultural evangelism declares the truth about those who are hearing the message, declares the truth about God, declares the truth about humanity in general, and declares the truth about Jesus. Uh, in our scripture in, in Acts 17, uh, we see this, this truth concerning the hearers, and it is particular hearers, and we ought to know who our hearers are and follow the example of Paul in being able to identify and, uh, the sins of the culture and how the gospel relates to those sins, those sinful patterns in the culture. And so it is here. And I would submit to you that uh, the, the cultural sins are very clear in terms of the geographical re, uh, uh, declarations within the text. Uh, it isn't something that we make up. Uh, it is the city of Athens. Uh, and it's specifically mentioned that we are in Athens. It wants us to know that we are in uh, this major center of the ancient world. Athens. Uh, there were other major cities of the ancient world. Uh, Philippi, uh, Ephesus, Corinth, Rome, Athens. These are the major cities of the ancient world. There are some uh, New Testament books that are written to, uh, into places that are not major cities. In fact, they are like uh, the Comstock Parks or the Byron Centers of the ancient world. But most of the books are written uh, in cities and to the cities. And these cities were the most important cities of the Roman Empire, which was, of course, the largest empire in the history of the world from that time to this time and any time. The Roman Empire was vast and powerful. And Athens was one of the major cities. It was the intellectual center of the ancient world. And the Romans considered themselves Greek when it came to their thinking. And the Areopagus, where Paul is preaching, was considered to be the center of the, of the philosophical and religious debates of the day. And so Athens, the fact that Paul is preaching in Athens itself, is no minor matter. 
Athens would be like the New York City, the Washington, D.C., the London, Paris, Moscow, Buenos Aires, Houston of our day. The largest cities and most important cities of the world at the time. Now, they had a mountain. And that mountain is mentioned uh, clearly in our text. It is the Areopagus in verse 22. And Paul came to the Areopagus by invitation of the Epicureans. Uh, There were these who heard him, and they brought him there uh, to the, uh, they would bring him to the Areopagus itself. Now, Areopagus uh, is, means the hill of Ares. It's kind of a strange, well, uh, in the King James, it talked about it as Mars Hill. And Mars was the Roman god of war, and Ares was the Greek god of war, and the Greeks and the Romans thought of him as the same god of war. And sometimes they called him Ares, and sometimes they called him Mars. And he had a place where he was worshipped, and that is the hill of Ares. There's something very strange about the hill of Ares. The hill of Ares has no temple. There is nothing there reflecting possibly the fact that a god of war needs no temple. I'm not sure. It seems very strange to me that he has no temple. But he doesn't. And that's exactly the way that hill is today. There's no, there's no Greek Orthodox shrines built there, which they have them all over the place in Greece. And, uh, and, uh, um, but there's nothing. It's just the exact same hill that existed at the time of Paul. It's rock. It's not... It's not a, a nice place where there's grass and you sit in a, on the comfortable sod. No, it is rock. It is a rock hill. And that's the hill of Ares. And it was a, it was a hill uh, where there was philosophical and religious discussion. Now, the hill of Ares is actually right above the... Agora, which is mentioned in our text, that Paul was speaking in the Agora, that he was speaking in the marketplace. The marketplace is called the Agora. The marketplace is immediately below the hill of Ares. It's right there. If you're on the hill of Ares and you're talking, the people in the marketplace, if they're on the edge of it, on the bottom of that hill, they will hear you because it's kind of a natural amphitheater. And it, I was on the bottom and I was speaking and there were people up on top of the hill because it's all stone and there's nothing there. They heard me and they came down and said, we heard you talking. It is, it is a hill in which the, the sound is amplified and it goes all over. So, the, so some of the people in the marketplace would hear Paul when he was speaking on the hill of Ares. It's all connected. It's the bottom of the hill is about 150 yards down, and they hear him. You can hear him. So he's speaking to the to the people involved in finance and buying and selling. He's speaking to the philosophers. He's speaking to the idolaters. He's speaking to those involved in judgment, the court system. Well, why? how do we know that? It's because the Bible tells us this. Verse 34, 
Some men joined him and believed among them were Dionysus the Areopagite. The Areopagite. An Areopagite was not a worshiper of the god of war named Ares. An Areopagite was a supreme court justice of Athens. Because not only was the Hill of Ares a place where people went to talk about philosophy, it was the place where the supreme court met. And an Areopagite was a supreme court justice of the whole arena of the Greek land and Athens and the the hill of Ares is where the highest court of the land met. Now think about what Paul is preaching in terms of this. He hits every one of these areas and one more. This is the mountain. Because the hill of Ares is on a ridge And that ridge has an outcropping, and that's the hill of Ares. And then it goes down just a little bit, and then it goes up. And then it's been flattened on the top of the next hill. And that's the Acropolis. Oh, what's the Acropolis? The Acropolis is the largest temple structures of the ancient world. It's... 20 times bigger than the Hill of Ares. It is about six acres of temples made by human hands, like the temple of Nike. Did you know that that was a Greek god, Nike? That's a Greek god, not a shoe. And there's all these temples in their glory Right there. And when Paul is speaking on the hill of Ares, the people walking up the only walkway, they all hear him. Because it's either right behind him or right in front of him, depending on how he, which direction he's speaking. But they can hear him. Right there. The largest temple structure. One of the largest temple structures of the ancient world. One of the wonders. That's where everybody goes to, to uh, when they're on their tourist attraction. Still there. It's still there. Ruined, but ruins. They try to build them up, but it costs way too much. They can't do it. Can't match what the ancient Romans did with it. And all those things are there. So he's speaking on the mountain. He's speaking to the false gods. We see that in verse 24 and 25. The altar to the unknown God is the lead into, and God who made the world and everything in, He is Lord of heaven and other, does not dwell in temples made by human hands. And right behind Him is the greatest temple structure, one of the greatest temple structures of the ancient world. It's right there. Verse 25, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. He's attacking the temple structure that's right in his view. Verse 29, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, 
something shaped by art and man's devising. These temple structures are some of the greatest architectural feats of the ancient world, and Paul says they are nothing. This is not cultural identification. This is not saying, let me find a nice little bridge so they... So that we think we're all one. We're just really nice to, you know, we're, we, we all are basically the same, but we just have a little bit different emphasis. No. Paul is identifying every single major cultural difference within a few verses and taking each one to task. And the key is who God is. Who God is. Who is God? Made by human hands. Who is God? Who is the true God? Paul acknowledges that they are a people that are religious. That they have all kinds of gods. They they invest all kinds of time into worship. But it's a false worship. Just as in our day, so in the day of the ancient world, everybody thought it was good to talk about the different gods, different religious philosophies. And there was a certain toleration of all the different philosophies. Wasn't always agreement, but they all agreed to talk. They all agreed that uh, they were, uh, that these debates were good. And they were fine. And we could pat one another on the back and say, you did a great job. And Paul comes. And he says, God is God. And you are worshiping nothing. You worship nothing. And God is to be worshiped only in the way that God has commanded himself to be worshiped in. He does not dwell in temples. It reminds us of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, beginning with verse 14. Isaiah 44, verse 14. And this is about the craftsman who, with his hands, makes idols like the Athenians made their idols and their temples. And Isaiah declares that the idolater, the idol maker, he cuts down cedars for himself. He takes the cypress and the oak. He secures it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a pine and the rain nourishes it. Then it shall be for a man to burn. He will take some of it and warm himself. He kindles it and bakes bread. Indeed, he makes a god and worships it. He makes a carved image and falls down to it. And Isaiah is saying, Do you have a mind? Can you think? Why do you plant a tree? You plant the tree yourself. You watch it grow. The rain nourishes it. And then you cut it down and you bake bread with it and you warm yourself with it and you carve an idol and worship it? Do you see the insanity? Do you see it? 
He burns half of it in the fire, and with this half he eats meat. He roasts a roast, and he is satisfied. He even warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god. He carves his carved image. He falls down before it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know nor understand. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. And no one considers in his heart, nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire. Yes, I have also baked bread on its coals. I have roasted meat and eaten it. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver his soul, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? People of God, that is our culture today. Sometimes literally bowing down to wood and stone, back to paganism. But without a doubt, the false gods and false religions of our day are as insane as the idolaters of the ancient world. And Paul says to the Athenians, and Isaiah declares to the idolaters, you are insane. What are you doing? God is God. He declares the truth about the true God. God's word to his people in Isaiah. Remember these, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten. God declares that he has a people in the midst of an idolatrous culture. And God has declared to us, he has a people in the midst of this idolatrous culture, and God will call out for himself his own people. So like Paul, we must promote And in our own field, in our own, not as an apostle, but in our own circumstance, we need to bear testimony to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And every church must do that. He declares the truth about God. He declares the truth about humanity. Now, he declared the truth about his hearers in particular, uh, clearly in the context Uh, and we'll see this even more fully, of all of these major centers, the the marketplace, the the hill of Ares, and the uh, the great temple mount that is right there, the temple's mount, the false temple's mount, not the temple mountain of Zion. No, he, he looks at all of these and declares them, but he also declares the truth about humanity in general about how God created us. And once again, he takes apart uh, Greek philosophy in particular here and declares it all nonsense. If you look at the Greek philosophers, particularly the Stoics and the Epicureans, you see that 
caught the truth of God's word, cuts across both and declares both to be nonsensical, wrong, fundamentally in error. And Paul brings all those things to the forefront in this really short summary of his gospel proclamations in the city of Athens. So he declares that God is the God in verse 25 Uh, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he made made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. There is no barbarian and Greek or Roman. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is only one flesh. From one man named Adam. And God made that one man. And from that man, all people, male and female, have been born. That is the way it is. It is not according to the culture of the day. Everyone is fundamentally in the same boat, because they're all created by the same God. And God determines the time. So uh, he addresses both providence and creation in these verses. He starts actually with providence, and then he moves to creation. He is Lord of heaven and earth, current Lord. He is the one uh, who gives in the present life, breath, and all things. And then it's God made from one. He created from one. And then back to providence, he has determined and the pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. God is the one that is in control of nations. God is in the one control of history. This is God. A common theme in the ancient world was that the creation was eternal. And even out of the creation, there were some debates about exactly what was the relationship between the physical world and the gods. And most of the ancient world believed that the physical world itself gave birth to the gods who gave birth to people. There is nothing like that in the Bible. And there is nothing like that in countercultural evangelism, whether it's in Paul's day or our day, with the false notions of evolution. And so God's word is clear. And countercultural evangelism focuses and even highlights these distinct differences. We don't, have, we don't have a seeker-sensitive gospel. We have a God who seeks lost sinners. And so the word of the Lord goes out. And God's word sets before the Athenians of old. And he sets before us the pattern of how we too would proclaim the truth of God's word. And then it points out, not only God the Creator, but verse 29 and 30 will focus on, now what is our obligations as, a, as created creatures? 
we ought to worship God. We ought to repent before God. We ought to hear that commandment, you shall have no other gods before you. We need to turn from the wicked false gods and from the wicked false ways of worship and from the false philosophy and from racial pride and from generational sins of having false gods and turn from your ignorance, which you think is philosophical superiority. And then you need to worship in the right way. You need to worship God in spirit and in truth. In truth and in love. You need to worship God in the way that He has commanded you to worship. You need to worship the one true God. And it says that he overlooked his ignorance. We'll look at that for just a second here in verse 30. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Does that mean God said... Uh, when it says he overlooked them, does God say, well, I'm just going to ignore the fact that these were all rebellious sinners for so many generations and, and they're all going to be fine. I'm going to bring them all into heaven. Of course not. When it says that God overlooked that, it would mean that God did not destroy them utterly. He did not end the world in, ju- in judgment. He waited for the coming of Jesus Christ in order for the gospel to go out to all the world. But now the wait is over and what are you commanded to do? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. He waited for the first coming of Christ even as he declares the second coming of Christ. He commands all men everywhere to repent. And why ought you to repent? Verse 31, because He, God, has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He ordained. He has given assurance of this to all the the world by raising Him, that is, the one He ordained, from the dead. Did you follow the argument? Uh, uh, What Paul is saying here is, He's saying this on the Hill of Aries. He's saying this to the Supreme Court justices. He's saying this to those who think they have the best judicial system in the history of the world. He's saying this, God has appointed a man, Jesus Christ, to judge you. He's going to judge you. And, he's gonna, and he has proven that he is the judge because he raised them from the dead. If there was a weaker argument in the history of the world for the Greek mind, it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is what you would say, don't bring in the resurrection because the Greeks don't believe in the resurrection, so don't talk about it. It will be an offense to them. They believe that matter is is something that's going to disappear ultimately, and everything will be of the mind. It will be of a bodiless soul, spirit existence. That's what's really important. It's to, at least the Stoics felt that way. We'll do away with everything concerning the, the flesh, uh, uh, the physical. And the ultimate reality is absolutely non-physical. So when Paul says, 
The resurrection proves that God is bringing Jesus, that Jesus is going to return to be your judge. I'm just saying that really is, a, is not a very good philosophical argument for Greeks. But it's a great biblical argument because it's the truth. And the proclamation of the gospel ought never to be dependent on the culture in which you are addressing. Dependent. Paul is certainly bringing up every issue of the culture. But he is not compromising the gospel in any way. Nor ought we in our wicked and perverse culture. And so when they when Paul would mention the resurrection. And of course, if you're talking about raising him from the dead, you are assuming that there's already been a proclamation about why he died and how he died. He died on a cross. He died for our sin. Paul has been declaring these things. He was crucified because of you. God sent his son. So this isn't the exhaustive declaration of every element that's necessary for gospel proclamation, but it is that springboard from which and in the context of which Paul is proclaiming the whole counsel of God and the truth of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that God is a God who saves a people for himself through the life, death. A man appointed, a man anointed, the anointed one, the Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Savior. He was ordained to this. He was incarnated to this. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead. A man called Jesus. That resurrection from the dead. And Jesus raised, raised a man, raised a son, raised a king, raised a male, raised a judge of the living and the dead. And the call is to repent and believe. And so the truth of Jesus is brought in. And there were those who heard the truth. They heard it. Verse 34 is just a glorious declaration that that God is at work through the proclamation of the gospel in Athens by Paul. They declared that, and when they heard of the resurrection, some mocked. Others said, we will hear you again. And others, some men, joined him and believed. Some believed. And we have every confidence, people of God, that some will believe today when the gospel is proclaimed to a lost world. They will embrace what you know to be true. And among them, 
was Dionysus the Areopagite. Oh, this is one of those conversions that makes the news. Uh, that is the high-profile guy. Uh, this, is, this is like uh, if uh, President Biden would become a Christian. Could you imagine? Or the most liberal Supreme Court justice. She'd become a Christian. Can you imagine? And their name would be declared. Dionysus, the Areopagite. He's what, he believes what Paul is preaching. Can you believe this? We can't believe it at all. And a woman named Damaris. A woman named Damaris. Who's Damaris? What position does she have? None. What do we know about her? Was she a leader of the society? There is absolutely no evidence for that at all. She's a woman named Damaris. In the ancient world, probably considered almost a nothing. Not important at all. But in talking about conversion, she's no different than Diometrius. They're just put Dionysius, the Areopagite. They're put side by side. Why is that? That is because people of God, the gospel cuts across. It, it lays bare both male and female, both slave and free, both judicial Supreme Court judge and the beggar on the street. There's no difference. Galatians chapter 3 declares that this way. Galatians 3, 24 and following. Therefore, 26. But you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many as you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now that verse does not mean that there is no such thing as a distinction between male and female. We know that. God's word is clear on that. But it does mean that in the context of evangelism and the need for salvation, there is absolutely no difference between the Supreme Court justice and a woman named Damaris. Because the gospel cuts across every cultural barrier. The gospel cuts across every social barrier between that man has raised between male and female. It, it cuts across it all. We are all, we all stand before the cross in the exact same way. We all stand before the judgment seat of Christ in exactly the same way. Both male and female. And in the saving grace of God, we're all saved the same way. Through Jesus Christ. Through his death on the cross. Through the power of his resurrection. People of God have every confidence that the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. To the barbarian, 
which is the non-philosophical group that Rome declared to be non-essential and ignorant, and the one steeped in Greek philosophy. It doesn't matter. For there is a gospel that can shatter every cultural opposition. May we have every confidence in that gospel. For we know it is the power of God unto salvation. For we have experienced that salvation ourselves. Amen. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for that record of the proclamation of the gospel in your word. And particularly as we looked at it tonight in the book of Acts, as Paul brings that word in that wicked, culturally elite city of Athens. But we thank you, O God, that in the power of the Spirit and in the truth of the gospel, the gospel goes forth and people are saved. Use us, O Lord, in such a way. And Father, give us every confidence to proclaim that gospel in the context of a dead, dying even insane world and bring about and gather your own through that proclamation. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.